We have within us a natural longing for security. And because of that, you've probably seen billboards and commercials advertising all kinds of home security systems, right? Because we want to feel like our property is secure and our families are secure. Most of your vehicles probably have some kind of security system. But physical security, whether of our bodies or of our property, is not the only kind of security that we long for. Uh, We also long for financial security. So there are government services like Social Security, and there are private companies that offer services that uh, promise or provide some type of long-term financial security, like in your retirement account, your 401k. But at a deeper level than that, we also want relational security. Uh, That's part of why... Family is so important. Uh, Marriage, long-term friendships, these are all ways that that need is met to have relational security so that we know someone will always be there for us, no matter what happens. But the deepest need of all, of course, is for spiritual security. The desire to know that we are loved and accepted now and forever by God. It's that kind of security that Jesus speaks about in the second half of John chapter 10. So I invite you to open your Bible there with me. John chapter 10, we're picking it up in verse 22, and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. Jesus, of course, has already been talking here about the fact that he is the good shepherd of the sheep, that he lays down his life for the sheep and takes it up again. And people were divided uh, uh, over Jesus. They didn't know what to think about him. They had different opinions about who he was and the things he was doing and the things he was saying. But then we pick it up in verse 22. It says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, that's where he has been for some time now. And it is the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now, that's not a feast that you're probably familiar with, like you are Passover or Pentecost. And part of the reason why is this was a feast that celebrated something that happened between the Old and the New Testament. So this is not an Old Testament feast like Passover that goes all the way back to the Exodus. This is a feast celebrating the rededication of the temple. Again, that happened between the time of the Old and New Testament. And it was a feast that evidently occurred in the winter time because John tells us it was winter in verse 22. And Jesus was there in the temple at Jerusalem and a group of the Jews approached him and put a very pointed question to him in public. They said to him essentially this, we are tired of waiting for you to give us a straight answer. Tell us once and for all, Are you the Christ or not? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one from the Old Testament or not? Now, Jesus has already answered this question. Uh, He may not have answered it the way they wanted him to, but he has answered it. Why, though, will he not answer it the way they want him to? Notice that Jesus says in verse 25, in answer to their question, he says, I told you. And you do not believe. Why doesn't he just say, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Christ. He did say that to the woman at the well in Samaria back in chapter 4. Why won't he say that here? It's because Jesus knows what many of the people in his day thought the Messiah would be like and thought he would do. And it was a misunderstanding of why Jesus had come. And so he didn't want to say in front of a crowd of people in the temple, yes, I'm the Messiah. Because he knew what would happen. They would take him by force, or try to, try to make him king, just like they tried to do back in chapter 6. And they would expect him to head up an army to fight against the Romans. That's what they thought the Messiah had come to do, to give them political salvation, political deliverance. But that's not why Jesus came. That's not what he was here to do. And so he was not going to say anything that would set off the crowd at the temple to bring about what would probably end up feeling a little bit like a riot if he had said, yes, I am the Messiah. But he also doesn't dodge the question. He doesn't say, I can't answer that. I'm not going to answer that. He says, I told you. 
I have already answered that in a multitude of ways. We've seen that all throughout the Gospel of John. But here's what he says to them. The problem is not that I haven't answered the question. The problem is you don't believe the answer. I have told you and you do not believe, he says. You don't want to hear the answer. And he says further... The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The reason you don't believe is you're not mine. You're not my sheep. You don't believe. You keep asking me these questions, but you won't listen to the answers that I tell you. The problem is not with me, Jesus says. The problem is with you. Instead, he says in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I know you're not of my sheep because you're not listening to me. My sheep do listen to me. My sheep do hear my voice, and they follow me. Now, what does that mean? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Some of you, I think, have heard me tell the story about when I was um, at a, a, a prayer meeting one time when I was in college and um, somebody said, don't leave this room until you hear Jesus's voice. I thought, oh man, I'm never going to leave, right? Because I've tried this before, right? How do I know when Jesus is speaking to me? How do I know the difference between Just like what I'm thinking or think I ought to be thinking and what Jesus is actually saying. Well, if we think about this verse clearly, it's it's not terribly hard to figure out. Okay, because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. But he says, you are not among my sheep and you don't believe. Right? So here's the difference between the people who are of the sheep and hear Jesus' voice and those who don't. Everybody there heard Jesus' voice. Right? He was there speaking in public. Everybody heard Jesus talking. The question was not, did you hear him audibly? The question was, did you respond to his words with faith And faith that led to following what he said. Or here's another way to put it. When you heard Jesus speaking, did you say, that's my shepherd. That's my savior. That's my Lord. That's the one I'm going to follow. Or did you say, that's just another guy talking. That's the difference. So today, we're probably not going to hear Jesus' voice audibly. Right? I mean, he could do that if he wants to, but that's definitely not the norm. We do, though, hear his voice in his word, right? Because he speaks to us through the scripture. This is God's word. So the question is, how do you respond to what Jesus says in the word? Do you hear the word and think, oh, that's just another group of people's opinions? That's just another possible set of sayings that you could base your life on if you want to. Or do you hear the words of Jesus from the scripture and say, that's my shepherd. That's 
my Savior. That's the one I'm going to follow. That's the one whose words I'm going to base my life on. That's what it means to hear the voice of Jesus and follow Him. Not to have some mystical experience necessarily, but just to hear Jesus speak and say, that's the one I'm listening to. That's the one I'm going to follow. That's what makes all the difference. In fact, it makes so much difference. Here's what Jesus says. Not only do my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, but verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep, he says, receive from me a permanent gift. I give them eternal life. This is just what we were told back in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, that's what Jesus is talking about here, believing, goes with hearing and following, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what He says here. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. It's not something they earned. It's a gift that I give. He told us earlier in the chapter how he's going to secure that gift for us, right? When he was talking about his death and resurrection. He gives us eternal life. We will never perish. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now remember earlier in the chapter, he talked about the fact that there are thieves and robbers, They try to get into the sheep pen, the sheep fold. And they're not interested in leading the sheep, loving the sheep, caring for the sheep. They come to steal and kill and destroy. They come to plunder the sheep. Jesus says, any sheep that's in my hand will never be snatched by any thief. They are secure Forever, The life I give them is eternal. They have no need to fear ever perishing because I give them life that lasts and no one can snatch them from me to kill them or destroy them. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying here that we will never experience physical death, right? He's talked about that before. He's talking about spiritual life so that even once our body dies... Our soul goes into the presence of Christ and continues to live forever. And then when Jesus comes back, then our bodies too are raised from the dead, just like Jesus came out of the tomb alive on the third day. And we live with Him in a resurrected body, in a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. That's what He has secured for us. That's what He has promised us. And that's what He says absolutely no one could ever take from us. That's really good news. He adds to it, as though that were not enough, by saying in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father gave me these sheep, Jesus said. So the father said, here's these sheep, they're mine. And then to his son, to Jesus, he says, I want you to hold them and keep them 
And I'm going to hold them and keep them too. So Jesus says, my sheep are in my hand and my sheep are in my father's hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. You are doubly secure. Nothing to fear. Now, if you hear that and think that that means that you're just fine living however you want because one time, sometime, you asked Jesus to save you way back when. You don't understand what Jesus said. He did not say, anyone who's ever claimed to call on me is safe no matter what they do. That's not what he said. He said, my sheep are always safe no matter what. But we have to pay attention to who the sheep are. The sheep are those who hear his voice and follow him. If you're not following him, how do you know you're a sheep? But on the other hand, if you then hear this and think, I don't know if I'm secure, because I don't always follow him perfectly. I don't always do what I I'm supposed to do. I'm not always listening to Christ like I should. You also missed what he's saying. He doesn't say anyone who always does exactly what I tell him to do will be secure. But you better watch out. Because the first time you mess up, I'm dropping you. That's not what he said. When you hear his voice, do you respond? When you hear his voice in the word, even when you struggle to do what it says, do you know that's who I'm trying to follow? That's who I belong to. That's whose word I trust, even when I fail to keep it like I know I should. If that's you, Jesus says, you're secure. Messing up, right? Sinning doesn't disqualify you. Otherwise, no one's in that hand. But if you recognize Him as your shepherd, as your Savior, as your Lord, you're His sheep. And Jesus is the kind of shepherd that never, ever, ever loses a sheep or lets a sheep stay lost. He always holds us in his hand. And then he says, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, this is way more than what they asked Jesus to say when they said, tell us, are you the Christ or not? Now he says, I have these sheep and they're in my hand and they're secure. And by the way, They're also in the Father's hand, and they're secure. And guess what that means? The Father and I, Jesus says, are one. To be in my hand is to be in the Father's hand. And what Jesus is saying then, when he says the Father and I are one, is not merely that Jesus and the Father have the same purpose, the same goal to protect the sheep, though that's true. He's also saying that he and the Father are one. One God. 
One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? One God who exists in three persons. Jesus is claiming to be equal with, to be one with the Father. He's claiming more than that He's the Messiah, which He has acknowledged and which is true. He's also claiming to be God in the flesh. And they know that's what He's claiming, because the very next thing they do is pick up stones to throw at Him, because... They want to kill him because they think he's blaspheming. They think he's merely a man who is claiming to be God. But before we get to that part, we need to nail down what verse 30 means. Jesus, who is our shepherd, is not just a great man, not just a great teacher, not just a loving example of what it means to be a good person. He is the eternal Son of God. With all that means, He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. No one can thwart any purpose of God's. And Jesus is God. So if Jesus aims to save you and keep you, absolutely no one can stop Him. No one can steal you from His secure hand. So, they know what He means. They know what He's claiming. That He's claiming to be God. And so they pick up stones in verse 31. And then in verse 32, Jesus says, I've shown you a lot of good works. Just a chapter ago, He healed a man who was born blind. Something nobody else had ever done. So he says, I've I've shown you a lot of good works. Which one of those are you going to stone me for? And they come back to him in verse 33 and they say, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. But for blasphemy, they say, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's what they thought Jesus was doing. They thought he was another man, just like them, who was trying to exalt himself, lift himself up above other men, and make himself equal with God. But they had it backwards. Because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that the Son was in the form of God. He was equal with God. But he did not grasp onto or cling tightly to his equality with God. But instead, he lowered himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, Paul says, being born in the likeness of men. He's not a man exalting himself to become God. He is God who humbled himself and became a man for our sake while remaining fully and truly God. That's what's really going on. But they don't see that. They don't understand that. And so here's what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, okay, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods. Now that's a quote from Psalm 82. And it's probably the strangest Old Testament quote anywhere in the New Testament, right? It takes us totally by surprise. Because the one thing we know about the Old Testament is it makes really clear there's only one God. 
Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? God says there's no one else like me. There is no other God. But Jesus quotes this psalm where it says, you are God's, plural. Now, to understand a little bit of what he's, uh, what's going on there, uh, we need to know the, the opening verses of Psalm 82. So Psalm 82 starts this way. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Right? So God is sitting in this divine council. In the midst of the gods, it says, he holds judgment. And here's what God says to these gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then in uh, the part of the psalm that Jesus is quoting here, God says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Okay, now we don't have to understand all of that's going on there in order to understand what Jesus is doing here. But the basic idea in that psalm is that God is addressing either men who are kings and princes, probably, who have positions of high authority, and calling them gods, not that they're actually divine, but that they're in this exalted position, and he's calling them to account for their sin, right, that they're not treating the weak uh, properly, or he could be talking to angelic beings, right, and calling them gods in a sense, because they are above humans, right, and so much more powerful than us. But either way, what Jesus is doing here is simply this, I think. He's trying to create space in these people's minds to just be able to consider that it's possible that Jesus is more than a man without stoning him for blasphemy. So he says, okay, there's a psalm where God speaks to other beings, whoever they might be, and he says to them, you are gods. That's in the Bible. Scripture can't be broken, Jesus says. So, if that's in the Bible, then why... Am I automatically blaspheming if I say that I'm the Son of God? Now, that's, I don't think Jesus is claiming that that psalm is about him. I don't think he's claiming that that verse solves the riddle of how Jesus can be God and man. I think he's just trying to push back long enough that they have to say, okay, may, maybe there's a way that you can talk like this and not be blaspheming, so that they'll listen, so that they'll give Jesus another window to explain to them who he is. So then he says to them, verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. What is Jesus saying there? Notice, first of all, He doesn't ask for a blind trust. He doesn't. Jesus never says, look, I know there's no evidence. I know there's no indication that I'm anybody special. But just go with me on this. I'm the son of God. Just believe me. He never does that. He shows. He tells. 
His, his life, His ministry, His works are all meant to testify and back up His claims that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. He talked about this at length in chapter 5 when He said, here's all the witnesses you have. I'm not asking you to believe me on my testimony alone. But think about the witness of John the Baptist. Think about the witness of all the works that I've done. Think about the witness of the Father. So he's doing the same thing here again. He's saying, even if you can't listen to me and believe what I say, at least think about the things that I've done. Don't the works that I've done show that the Father is at work in me? And here, I think Jesus is building on what happened at the end of chapter 9 when he's healed this man who was born blind. And there's this debate about, you know, is Jesus really a prophet or something more? Or is he a sinner in the sense of somebody who is deliberately disobeying God's word and going against God's will? And the man who had been healed from his blindness says something along the lines of, do we really think that somebody who was shaking their fist at God could possibly heal someone like me when nobody else has ever been able to do this? Doesn't the work itself, in other words, bear witness that Jesus has to be from God? So maybe the fact that you guys are all mad that He did it on the Sabbath because you think that means He broke the law and He's not listening to God... Isn't it possible you're wrong about that part? Because the work itself is pretty clear. Right? Uh, Jesus is saying the same kind of thing here. Okay, you, you are stumbling over the fact that I'm claiming to be one with the Father. That I'm claiming to be God. Okay. But look at what I've done. If the things I've done don't match up with that claim, fine. Don't believe me. But I've turned water into wine. I've calmed a stormy sea. I've multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands of people. I've healed a man born blind. In the next chapter, he's going to raise a man from the dead. Can you be so sure that I'm not the Son of God? That's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. But they don't listen. Verse 39 says, Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Finally, briefly, it says, He went away again to the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. This takes us all the way back to chapter 1, when John the Baptist was baptizing, and Jesus was first introduced to Israel through John's ministry, where John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes back to that place. It brings his ministry to this point full circle, which is appropriate because we're really almost to the last week of Jesus' life. It doesn't feel like that because we're only halfway through the Gospel of John. But chapter 12 takes us to the last week of Jesus' ministry and all the rest of it focuses on that. So we're almost at the end of Jesus' public ministry. And so he comes full circle back to where uh, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And some, some of the people who were there also kind of come full circle because verse 41 says, Many came to him there in that place, and they said, John did no sign, 
But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. In other words, Jesus has just been saying, Hey, I've done all these signs. I've done all these works. Don't those bear witness to the fact that I'm the Son of God? And then some come back to where John had baptized Jesus and and talk about who Jesus was, that he was so much greater than John, that John wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, that he was the Lamb of God who would take away our sin. And they say, you know, John didn't do any signs. John didn't do any dramatic works. But everything he said about Jesus lines up. Everything John said about Jesus came true. And they believed. Which means it doesn't really matter whether it's the works that convince you about who Jesus is or whether it's the testimony of somebody like John who convinces you or whether it's the prophecies in Scripture about Jesus' coming or whatever it is. What matters is Do you recognize Jesus as the shepherd? Do you follow him? Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you recognize him for who he is? That's all that really matters. Because the most important kind of security that you can have, spiritual security, is found only in Jesus. And he is the one who is forever committed to your good and who no one can stop or thwart, who has laid down his life for your life, who took it back up again so that that life would be everlasting, eternal, and to show us once and for all that we can trust him because he alone can truly keep us safe. Let's pray.